History of Persia is a Hopful Media Podcast production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 99, Slaves of the King. This episode is long overdue. I've just never really had a good opportunity to include it, and I finally realized that the desired opportunity just isn't going to come. We have a little lull in the action now that Egypt is conquered again, and this is really my last chance to do this. Once the narrative resumes, we will enter a long, dark tunnel in the history of Persia. And when we emerge into the light, nothing will be the same. Today, we are looking at the whole span of Achaemenid history to understand the lives of the little people. The farmers, builders, and servants who kept the Persian juggernaut moving for over 220 years. You know, the vast majority of humanity, who most of us might actually be able to relate to. It's a shame that there's really only one episode here, but unless you really like the intricate details of pottery style, or catalogs of rations, there's not much to say. Other sources are dominated with the concerns of the political and economic elite. The very first thing to do is wind the clock all the way back to 539 BCE, with Cyrus the Great's triumphant entry into Babylon, and the proclamation of his divine right to rule with the Cyrus Cylinder, which I discussed all the way back in episode 8, Fill in the Titles which, by the way, is now freshly remastered and up to the current recording standard, as are all other episodes before episode 12. For those that need a refresher from an episode I released four years ago, the Cyrus Cylinder is a proclamation from Cyrus the Great, which was inscribed on a traditional Mesopotamian foundation cylinder. It was produced immediately following his capture of Babylon in 539 BCE. The inscription is written in typical Babylonian Akkadian and describes how Cyrus was the chosen one of the chief Babylonian god Bel-Marduk. He was selected to rise up and replace the Babylonian king Nabonidus, who had neglected his duties to the capital and to Marduk by overly patronizing the moon god Sin. That's basically all of it. The cylinder itself was buried in the foundations of that temple, 
where it remained until 1879 when it was excavated by the Assyrian archaeologist Hormuzd Rassam on behalf of the British Museum. Copies of the text on simple tablets have been found in several Babylonian towns. So we know the message was promulgated in public, but in antiquity, these documents were not treated as particularly significant. And they were only really of interest to niche historians when they were rediscovered in the 19th century. Then, in 1963 AD, Another Iranian king described his ancient predecessor's message to the conquered Babylonians in a very, very different way. Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi was the reigning king of Iran. A few years before, he declared himself the Shahanshah, the king of kings, the first one of those Iran had seen in centuries. But shortly after, a CIA-backed coup, or at least pseudo-coup since it only deposed half the government. That intervention came through an international effort to oust Mohammad Reza's prime minister, Mohammad Mosaddegh, in 1953. If you have a problem with that description, please, for f***'s sake, read about it. The CIA has admitted this, the details are all public. Kermit Roosevelt son of President Theodore Roosevelt, was in charge of CIA operations on the ground in Iran. You can't make it up. But I digress. That's not really what we're talking about today. Knowing that this was after the 1953 coup is just important groundwork. Up to that point, the Shah had not taken much of an active role in his own government, instead relying on a succession of various prime ministers before Mosaddegh. After that point, Mohammad Reza was not only increasingly involved, but increasingly autocratic. To be clear, he was not an absolute monarch by any stretch but he exercised the full range of his constitutional powers and then a little bit more after 1953. And a decade later, he published a book laying out his plans for the White Revolution of Iran, a program of reforms to restructure Iranian society for the 20th century. You may guess by the fact that he was ousted by a conservative Islamic revolution 16 years later that this was divisive and riddled with economic problems. But again, I digress. His 1963 book, also titled The White Revolution, contains this passage, translated by me from a poorly OCR'd Persian copy, which is to say that it is a rough translation at best. I more intend to capture the message that the Shah was trying to convey than his specific words. The famous document of Cyrus, which is one of the most brilliant manifestations of the rights of freedom and justice in human history, according to this charter. For the first time, the right to freedom of opinion and other human rights, as far as it concerned Cyrus, were given. For the first time, this would be given to all peoples of the imperial nations, freedom from plunder and looting, which was the accepted method of conquest. Slavery was prevented, 
and since then it has almost always been so in this country. A shelter and refuge for all members of minorities of any kind of ethnicity and religion. This is, to the best of my knowledge or anyone else I can find writing about it, the first reference to the Cyrus Cylinder as the supposed first charter of human rights. It is not. You can read the actual translation, I'll post a link, it says nothing even related to human rights. It's also quite bizarre that the idea of the supposed Charter of Cyrus and its imagined contents appear fully formed in their very first publication. We don't know where this idea came from before it was published by Mohammad Reza Shah. It is also patently absurd to suggest that slavery was uncommon in Iranian history, given that it was only abolished by his own father in 1928. We can say that the Shah's conception of the Cyrus Cylinder connects one way or another to the history of the physical document itself. The large clay cylinder identified by Hormuzd Rassam in the 19th century is actually only part of the full text, labeled Fragment A by modern scholars. For a long time, this was the only fragment. The cylinder is damaged, particularly with a large chunk on one side, containing the very last lines of the inscription. Rassam's excavation actually did collect this missing part, completely intact but separated from the main cylinder. However, as a random chunk of clay, it didn't receive much attention for decades. Fragment B, as it is called, was first studied, translated, and published in 1920. But it was not until 1970 that it was definitively identified as the missing piece of the cylinder. Remember, the White Revolution was published in 1963. There is a fake translation of the Cyrus Cylinder. I won't read from it much, and I certainly will not link off to it, because it's often hosted on websites brimming with other terrible history and nationalist propaganda. But this fake translation uses a real translation of Fragment A, then shifts to an obviously different, very obviously fake text right where Fragment B should be placed. The fake translation switches to a much more modern writing style, starts talking about Ahura Mazda instead of Bel Marduk and Nabu, and more importantly, tries to fit the Shah's conception of this document as a human rights decree. Particularly, I want to read out this utterly fake line. And until I am monarch, I will never let anyone take possession of movable and landed properties of the others by force or without compensation. Until I am alive, I prevent unpaid forced labor. Today, I announce that everyone is free to choose a religion. People are free to live in all regions and take up a job provided that they never violate others' rights. So the translation of whoever wrote this from modern Persian is obviously shaky, 
but that's not the point. Of course everyone was free to choose a religion, nobody had ever not been free to do that in the Iranian world before this time, and for centuries after this time. But Cyrus absolutely, positively, did not, in any way, shape, or form, forbid the confiscation of property without compensation or ban unpaid forced labor. His empire and imperial ambitions ran on looted wealth from conquered cities and made use of conscript labor to build its burgeoning infrastructure. His generals had deported huge populations from Ionia just four years earlier, for heaven's sake. Also, there's not even an Akkadian, Elamite, or Old Persian word that we could even plausibly try to translate as rights in the modern, liberal, political sense. Whether this fake translation emerged in print, in, or around Iran before 1963 and influenced the Shah, or was composed later to provide evidence for the Shah's propaganda, we just don't know. Either is plausible. It was never published officially prior to the internet age, as far as I can tell. No matter, the Shah pushed this line, and he pushed it hard from the beginning of the White Revolution until he was chased out of the country by the Islamic Revolution of 1979. He even chose Cyrus's conquest of Babylon in 539 BCE as the anniversary to celebrate 2,500 years of Iranian empire in 1971. Pay no attention to the large span of Arab occupation in the 7th century. As part of that celebration, his sister, Princess Ashraf Pahlavi, presented the United Nations Secretary General with a replica of the Cyrus Cylinder. Or at least Fragment A, because they didn't have the whole thing yet. The message that came with the cylinder asserted that the heritage of Cyrus was the heritage of human understanding, tolerance, courage, compassion, and above all, human liberty. Again, it's nonsense. But it hasn't stopped the United Nations from accepting that ahistorical propaganda hook, line, and sinker. To this day, the UN officially acknowledges the Cyrus Cylinder as the first charter of human rights. And as a consequence, political scientists and journalists routinely describe it that way and parrot the fake translation in formal publications. This has led to a widespread myth that Cyrus abolished slavery and that the Persian Empire was an anti-slave abolitionist state. Bullshit! Completely and utterly. I cannot stress it enough. And yet neither was the Achaemenid Empire a slave state in the same way as its Greek neighbors like Athens and Sparta, or like the later Roman Empire. It certainly couldn't hold a candle to the modern colonial slaver societies like the United States or any of the other colonial empires of the 18th and 19th century. So, with that lengthy preamble, we get to today's topic, 
slavery, bondage, and common labor in the Achaemenid Empire. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. So, slavery in the Achaemenid Empire, what was it really? The answer, you might suspect, is complicated. As with everything else, the specific legal systems and cultural traditions around enslavement varied drastically from one region to the next. The Achaemenids never sought to push Persian sensibilities on their subjects, so Greek subjects retained Greek norms, including about slavery. Egypt did the same for itself, as did Babylon, Judea, and so on and so forth. The major scholar on this topic was Mohammed A. Dandamayev, a Russian, and originally Soviet, historian of the Achaemenid Empire, especially in Babylonia. First, some ground rules for this discussion. In the modern world, slavery is pretty easily defined as involuntary labor without pay. However, in antiquity, specifically before the spread of Greek hegemony, that gets complicated. After about 300 BCE, you can pretty easily say that being paid in room and board doesn't count as payment when trying to decide if somebody was enslaved. 
but most of the Persian Empire did not have a money economy. Payment in kind, usually measured and documented based on the value of basic foodstuff, was the standard. Everyone from the most prestigious craftsmen and wealthy merchants down to the lowliest day laborer was paid in room and board. You cannot use the lack of shiny bits of metal with a clever design on them as a definition of slavery at this stage in history, outside of the few regions around Greece that had already adopted coinage. There is also an issue in antiquity in general, from Achaemenid Babylon all the way down to the late Roman Empire, that slaves often were paid. It was usually a pittance, to be sure, but there are many records of slaves receiving payment in coin, when coins were normalized, or in raw metal value. Unlike the mass chattel slavery of the early modern period, these ancient enslaved people had the leeway to spend at their own discretion or save up and buy their freedom. But crucially, they were still considered legal property rather than people. There was even a system in Babylonia, a fairly common one at that, where people could be manumitted by their owners on the condition that they continue performing a service for their former slaver for the remainder of his life. That probably still sounds like slavery to most people, because by most modern definitions, it is. But this deal freed the former slave from the threat of being sold away from their home and family. It provided them with the legal protections of a free person and gave them the liberty to pursue their own business ventures. Neither can you use Greek references to enslavement as strong evidence. The Greeks accused the Persians of enslaving people en masse and coming to enslave them all during Xerxes' invasion. That was not the Persian style. Huge populations were sometimes deported in the style of similar empires before them, like Babylon and Assyria. But that was not enslavement. Yet, to the Greeks, it seemed like it must be. Greek armies took huge numbers of prisoners in war too, but then they sold them as chattel. They assumed their neighbors were the same. In reality, Iron Age Near Eastern deportation was a resettlement program. You were still legally and economically free, just forcibly moved somewhere far from home. This is important because sometimes you'll see claims that Cyrus liberated the Jews from slavery in Babylon. This is based on a combination of misinterpreting some biblical evidence like Nehemiah's discussion of Jewish debt slavery and exaggeration of the Babylonian exile. The Jews in Babylon were not slaves, they were just limited in where they were allowed to live. Many deported Jewish families became successful farmers and merchants in Babylonia. To properly contextualize what it meant to be enslaved in this time and place, you have to step a bit back from modern definitions and expectations 
of what defines free versus unfree labor. To be absolutely clear, a lot of these situations that a modern person might interpret as slavery or near slavery still sucked to be in. They were not desirable ways to live. However, the legal protections and the opportunities afforded to people in those categories were very different from those of people actually being treated as property. Slavery in the Achaemenid Empire and most of its contemporaries or predecessors was a system of forced, captive labor where the enslaved person was owned by another person or organization as property. There were private slaveholders, temple slaveholders, and government slaveholders at almost every rung of society. Now, when I say that the Achaemenid Empire was not a slave society, it's important to understand what that means too. Enslaved people were not a driving economic force. The vast majority of workers, agricultural or mercantile, were free. They might have been bound by contract to work for a wealthier noble or merchant for extended periods of time, with very little room to negotiate. But if their overlord violated the terms of that contract, they could be taken to court. And when the contract expired, the workers had a legal right to pack up and leave. That may not have been economically viable, but the option existed. And if we interpret it not being economically viable to leave a position where you are technically compensated and allowed to leave your job, well then, like, McDonald's workers are enslaved too, so that's probably not a great way to define things. This was less true in the more Greek-influenced areas of Anatolia, where the slave trade was massive and large slave plantations were fairly typical institutions. The same was true among the nobility in Egypt. However, for the empire at large, the vast majority of agricultural workers were free, or at least as free as one could be in the Achaemenid Empire. That brings me to our first word for bondage, bandaka. It's literally Old Persian for bondsman. And it is easy to see how the label bandaka could be interpreted as a form of slavery. This even seems to have confused some ancient Greek authors. However, as used in Old Persian examples like the Behistun inscription, Bandaka meant bondsman of the king, as in literally any subject of the empire. To a certain degree and from a certain kingly perspective, everyone was the great king's property. But in a practical sense, this couldn't mean much. Darius the Great wasn't going to pick out Babylonian peasant number nine and sell them to some noble in Greece. Of course, the word bondica can also be applied as an old Persian word for slave, and over time it certainly was. The modern Persian word barda is a linguistic descendant, and that is exactly how it is used. However, 
In the Old Persian context, the more typical word we would see is Garda, which appears as a Persian loanword in Imperial Aramaic and Elamite records to identify enslaved people. Interestingly, the Old Persian translator Roland Kent translates both Garda and another word, Maniya, as household slave, as in a person who was enslaved to work as a servant in a noble or royal palace, rather than laboring in the fields. Etymologically, this translation does fit both words, but in context, translating either exclusively as household slave is a stretch. Garda appears in the Aramaic letters of Arsimis, satrap of Egypt in the late 5th century, as a label for all of his slaves, including those who labored on building projects and agricultural work. Meanwhile, Mania appears in the Old Persian Behistun inscription, but in the Akkadian translation of the same passage, the word used specifically means hired workers, i.e. someone who's being paid, and the Elamite translation uses the much more nebulous label Kurtash. At its broadest, Kurtash simply means worker, but there is much more debate and nuance to that in Achaemenid studies than the simple translation would suggest. Kurtash is the standard word for any worker in the Persepolis archives, and appears to cover a whole range of legal statuses. If we're looking for a catch-all term for the most obviously enslaved people in a Caymanid society, that is, those who were owned and sold as chattel and could be reassigned at their owner's discretion, Garda is the best option. A person could find themselves in this situation as a Garda slave in any number of ways. Many would certainly have started as prisoners of war, either a war fought by the Persians or some other conflict where captives were taken from somewhere like Greece or Thrace and then sold in a slave market in Persian territory. We see a clear example of the former in Satrap Arsami's archives from Egypt where many people working on his estates were enslaved rebels from minor uprisings and the major revolts of the late 5th century before Egypt declared independence. They were enslaved by the satrap as punishment for their rebellion and became his property, forced to work on farms in northwestern Egypt. References to the latter situation abound, but an easy one to point out is Xenophon's Anabasis, where the rampaging Greek mercenaries started enslaving captives again after nearing the coast in Anatolia. Still deep in Achaemenid territory, the survivors of the 10,000 started selling their prisoners into slavery at the Greek ports they encountered like Trebizond. Herodotus and other Greek sources also reference a category of enslaved children owned by the great kings directly. Several provinces are noted for sending hundreds of boys and girls as part of their tribute payment. 
Some of this could relate to a misunderstanding of a different category, which I'll discuss later, but some of it was simply children being enslaved in their homelands and sent as payment, the same way other provinces sent livestock. Many of the boys were likely castrated to become eunuch servants, and all of them likely would have become household servants owned by the royal family and gifted once again to the nobility. However, much more of our evidence for the Garda slaves in a Caymanid territory comes from the receipt of sales from across the empire. These were people who had already been enslaved and sold to a private party at least once. In these records, they were now being sold again. There are too many of these receipts and bills of sale to list them all. Major collections include both the Jewish and Egyptian temples on Elephantine in Egypt, the Agibi and Marashu family archives from Babylonia, and the Samaria papyri. That last one is a collection of administrative records from the Samaritan home city north of Judea, and is almost exclusively related to the slave trade. European Greek records are also enlightening in regard to the Achaemenid slave trade, because they show a large number of people from Anatolian cultures, including other Greeks, Carians, Phrygians, Lydians, and Paphlagonians, all enslaved and sold in Greek markets. A fairly typical example of these slave trade records can be seen in the Persepolis Fortification Archive. The PFA does not include many explicit records of Garda, which is partly why I want to highlight this specific example from the home province. Quote, Raza Marma, son of Raza Marga, and Aspu Metana, son of Aspu Tatika, sold their slave women Kardara and Patiza to a Babylonian for two and two-thirds minas of silver. Based on the names, Raza Marma and Aspu Matana were Persians, or at least Iranians, selling a pair of enslaved women, also Iranians, to a Babylonian. Two and two-thirds minas would be about two and a third kilograms, or just shy of two pounds of precious metal the low end of the standard price of two enslaved people in Babylon, and the rough equivalent of a bare subsistence wage for 20 years. Part of the reason we don't hear much about blatant chattel slavery in the Persepolis archives is because most of the clearly enslaved people there would have been household servants while the archives themselves are largely concerned with manual labor. Instead, the Persepolis records are primarily concerned with the Kurtosh. Strictly speaking, as I said, Kurtosh means workers in Elamite. It is therefore only used in Elamite texts, primarily from Persepolis. However, similar systems to the one at Persepolis existed throughout the empire, and rather than using an Egyptian word here, an Elamite there, an Aramaic one over here, we tend to just say Kurtosh. 
especially because the Persepolis archives are the most detailed source for this system. Some of them were enslaved. We have references to Garda being sold, after all. However, the vast majority of Kurtosh fell somewhere in a complex spectrum between human chattel and free artisans. Persepolis especially was a hub of highly prestigious building projects and imperial wealth with a steady need for skilled craftsmen throughout Achaemenid history. You didn't want just anybody carving a relief of the great king on the palace walls for all eternity. Still, the vast majority of Kurtosh appear to be conscripts, brought to Persepolis under a system of corvée labor. If you can't tell, corvée comes from French, and originally referred to the medieval and early modern system under which French subjects could be called up and forced to work on public works by anybody above them in the feudal hierarchy, from landlords all the way to the king. The word corvée has been extrapolated to describe a number of very similar systems dating all the way back to the Egyptian Old Kingdom. The very early pharaohs used corvée labor to build the pyramids, for example. In every case, this was seen as a legal obligation similar to taxes, or in some cases, a replacement for taxes, since corvée obligations could be applied to artisans and manual laborers who didn't produce any surplus or own land. Kurtosh were recruited as corvée labor by the Achaemenids from all around the empire. Some were simple laborers like bricklayers, quarry workers, canal diggers, and so on. Those kinds of people could come from just about anywhere. If you can swing a hammer or scoop a shovel, you were good enough. Others were skilled artisans selected specifically to implement a particular style in the Achaemenid palaces, primarily drawn from Babylonia and Egypt. A great example of similar corvée labor elsewhere in the empire would be Xerxes' canal circumventing Mount Athos in the Chalcidiques. Thracians, Greeks, and Phoenicians were all brought in to work on the project as manual labor, including highly complex engineering projects. This sort of infrastructure work had the dual purpose of building an important construct for the government and bringing people from across the empire together to interact with one another. It was both a work gang and a networking event. Other Kurtosh do appear to have been prisoners of war. Most notably, several dozen Greek women suddenly appear in the PFA during the mid-490s, right at the tail end of the Ionian Revolt. They are noted in the records as being pregnant and thus receiving extra rations, but they were also set to hard labor, digging canals. While pregnant. And if you see where this is going, hit the skip button, it's just a sentence. There is a very high chance that these women were victims of sexual assault. Violated by marauding Achaemenid soldiers when their home cities were captured and sacked in Anatolia. 
It is technically possible that these women and other Greeks who began appearing in the archive near the end of Darius's reign were truly enslaved and held as chattel by the Achaemenid government. However, that wouldn't really fit the overall pattern we see from other Greek prisoners of war. From Cyrene to Euboea to the Thracian coast to Ionia, there are stories of mass deportation, including at least three that note exactly where the exiled Greek prisoners were settled, often in southern or eastern Iran. Several of them, particularly Herodotus's account of the Milesian deportees, references how the prisoners were first taken to the capital before being settled. It seems likely that these prisoners of war were used for forced labor temporarily before resettlement. That is, for all intents and purposes, a type of slavery though they were never intended to remain permanently captive as free labor for the Achaemenids to exploit. It seems that this was their punishment for rebellion. In a legal sense, though, they were likely not considered slaves for things like court proceedings, because they were ultimately freed at the end of the day. That just about covers the major categories of forced labor in the Achaemenid Empire and their historical context. Much of it is undoubtedly slavery. Some of it is only slavery if you force a modern interpretation on it. Others are slavery by modern definitions, but not most ancient conceptions of the institution. To give you a hint of where we are headed, episode 101 will be all about the ancient Iranian calendar system and its relationship to the Avesta. But first, there's a very big milestone for the podcast. Next week, we celebrate episode 100, and I will rank all of the Achaemenid great kings. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia.